Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DOD, industry, and other subject matter experts who explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. All right, so this week it's time for The Rendezvous, our monthly installment where the Mitchell team digs into stories you've seen in the headlines. And we're going to spend most of this episode focused on the Department of the Air Force's reorganization. As you know, it's probably one of the biggest changes to impact both the air and space force in recent memory. So we will hit it. Uh, and talk about some of the different current events per usual. And to kick it off, I'd like to introduce Mitchell Institute Dean, Lieutenant General David Deptula. Sir, welcome. Hey, thanks, Slick. Great to be here. Awesome. And we also have our space expert, Charles Galbraith, with us as well. So, Charles, welcome back. Thanks, Slick. It's always great to be with you. All right. And next, we have Todd Sledge Harmer with us. And Sledge is one of our DC experts. Great to be back, Slick. All right, and we also have Major General Larry Stutzstream, our Director of Research. Hey, Slick. Sir, good to have you back on the show. And last but certainly not least, we've got Gonzo Gunzinger, our Director of Future Warfighting Concepts and Capabilities. Hello, everyone. Gonzo, great to have you back. And before we get kicked off, Charles, I know we're working on an upcoming event, so you want to give us a rundown quickly? Thanks, Slick. Ladies and gentlemen, I just wanted to highlight that on March 27th, we'll be hosting our third annual Space Power Security Forum. This is an all-day event in person here in D.C. covering all things space power. And we're featuring top Space Force leaders from the Chief of Space Operations, General Saltzman, to other core members of his team, plus industry leaders and more. There's a reason why we've had top news outlets like CNN, Fox News, C-SPAN broadcast segments of this event each year. People make news, and you'll want to hear it from them firsthand. Space is limited, so please go to our website and sign up. This event always fills up fast. It's free to attend. Uh, just make sure that you RSVP in time. Thanks, and we're really looking forward to seeing you this year. Again, that date, March 27th. Awesome, Charles. Thanks for that, and I uh, hope some of our folks can make it out. All right, Sledge, I'm going to reissue you the same question we keep asking. Are we ever going to move past this continuing resolution? Hello, everyone. This is your producer, Shane, letting you know that events have further developed since our recording on Monday, February 26th. Well, I wish I could give you an answer that didn't require you to come back and ask that. The short answer is yes. Uh, it might take a while. Um, and it really boils down to when legislative text is going to be available and how long it takes for uh, that text to, uh, to clear the House uh, and the Senate. I, I don't want to geek out too much here, but I'd like to kind of do a little bit of the constitutional things I wish my high school civics teacher had taught me. First of all, the Constitution Article 1 establishes Congress as the first branch of government. It also says the only thing that Congress has to do every year is pass appropriations bills. Everything else is poetry. So that, I think, is what really frustrates a lot. And then the second thing I wish he would have taught me uh, is the winning lottery numbers on Capitol Hill. And those are 218, 60, and 1. And the Speaker of the House needs to get 218 votes. The majority leader in the Senate needs 60 votes. And then it has to be something that the occupant of the uh, White House is willing to sign. So those are really the three numbers that we, we need to keep focused on as we consider what's happening on Capitol Hill. And now to recap where we are. So the government is funded 
under a laddered CR. There are four uh, appropriations bills that expire on at midnight Friday, the 1st of March. Uh, and then a week later at midnight on the 8th of March, the uh, remaining eight appropriation or continuing resolution bills expire. So there's really precious little time uh, to be able to pass anything between now and midnight on the 1st to avoid a partial uh, government shutdown. And, and I want to point out the funding levels, the amount of money is not the problem here. There are some policy riders that are really complicating matters. And it's everything from, you know, personnel policy like abortion travel, some of the uh, DEI initiatives and uh, uh, border security, as well as some uh, um, gun provisions that are really holding things up. Um, so I guess then th that leads us to what comes next. And I'll give you kind of the uh, the weapon school debrief on best case, worst case, most likely here. Best case is all the planets magically align and we're able to get appropriations bills done. Unfortunately, we don't have time to do that. Uh, Speaker Johnson has promised his conference that he will give them 72 hours to review the text of whatever legislation is available. And uh, as of recording time, there has been no text available. So that would mean the first vote would be on approximately 24 hours before the deadline uh, funding to expire. So that's not enough time for the Senate to pick up anything, uh, move it through, even if they were to get a unanimous consent agreement uh, and then over to, uh, to the White House for signature. Um, the worst case is uh, that all hope is lost. And uh, when they decide that uh, they can't punt it anymore, they're going to go with a full year continuing resolution. The, uh, the problem with the, uh, with the CR is, as you remember last year in June, when the Financial Responsibility or Fiscal Responsibility Act passed, there was an automatic 1% cut to government spending if we didn't have appropriations bills by the 1st of May. Um, under a full year CR, those automatic cuts would go into effect and uh, that would drop the uh, FY24 uh, top line from 886 billion uh, down to about uh, 879 billion. So it, you'd see about a uh, almost $9 billion cut in, uh, uh, in purchasing power for the uh, Department of Defense. Um, and there are some in Congress that are actually banking on this happening, that they would really like to see that. And that's the, that's the fundamental problem that Speaker Johnson faces right now. Uh, the most likely scenario, though, is that they come to some type of an agreement here in the, in the next few hours. Uh, the text is passed, and um, there is insufficient time to get, a, uh, to get the bills passed before the first four bills under the CR expire. So we end up with a, a short-term uh, partial government shutdown over the weekend that would have negligible impact, but that's the most likely. Uh, but there are some other wild cards out there. Uh, probably the most notable is that there are discussions that there'll be another short-term CR to kick the can down to the 22nd of March, which allows time to get the rest, all 12 of the appropriations bills done uh, and, and get the government back open and running. But again, just to remind people, it's, it's how does Speaker Johnson get to 218 uh, without forcing a motion to vacate uh, to really th throw things into uh, to, uh, chaos. And it is a fast moving train, so stay tuned. Well, Sledge, as always, thanks for, for your breakdown. You know, I've got to ask you also, we, we're hearing defense leaders talk about the negative impacts that their services are feeling. Uh, so which ones have struck you the most when it comes to uh, the things that affect the air and the Space Force? Yeah, I think, Slick, that's really, it's impossible to pick a program or two. Um, to me, it's really all about readiness. That's what it takes to deliver a capability. Secretary Kendall, I think, is, uh, has established a masterful framework under his operational imperatives to decide how the service is going to prioritize investment. 
And I think the, the continuing resolution, either, you know, partial year or, or you know, God forbid, a, uh, a full year continuing resolution is going to affect each of those uh, operational imperatives differently. But if you were going to force me to say something, I would say it has the most adverse impact on uh, procurement. Um, you have to buy stuff um, and not just airplanes and satellites, although those do help. Uh, but you have to buy stuff in order to field uh, capabilities. And under a CR, what really happens is the um, new starts and programs are prohibited. And uh, there are no production increases or ramp rates in anything that you're currently manufacturing. So it really makes it hard to dig out of that smaller, older, less ready hole. Um, compounding that, you know, there there is limited budget authority that the Air Force has. There are must-pay bills. Personnel accounts are going to be pretty much sacred. Uh, you don't want to eat your seed corn, so uh, research, defense, test, and evaluation is going to be funded. And because of what's going on around the world, weapons and weapons sustainment accounts are going to be robustly funded. So, again, it comes back to O&M and procurement, which are your fundamental drivers of, uh, of readiness. Um, I, I also, I, I, you know, I just want to add there's some hidden costs, I think, to doing a continuing resolution. And that is it, it's very inefficient in the way you plan and you program and that you execute contracts. So the uncertainty and the delays impact the programs themselves, but more importantly, the people that have to execute those programs. Uh, specific to the Space Force, you know, I'll defer to Charles on, on particular programs. But, you know, what, what strikes me is you've got a service that's four years old. Um, it's hard enough to build an organization from the ground up. And that's really what we're trying to do is we focus on space as a warfighting domain. Um, it's practically impossible to do that when you've got one or more hands tied behind your back. Yeah, you know, and we also saw this news story uh, in Politico talking about how the budget caps Congress enacted are going to drive some major pain for all the services. Uh, you know, reduction in the F-35 buy, going down to one attack submarine and a cut for Army helicopters. There was a lot. Um, you know, it's one thing for a member to like the macro notion of budget cuts, but another when they see the tangible impact, especially, you know, when they hit close to home. And to be clear, Given the scale of modernization these days, especially for the Air Force and the Space Force, you know, none of this stuff is optional. So mission sunset without new uh, capability uh, and having enough capacity. So how do you think Congress will respond uh, to these cuts? Well, I've, I think first, Slick, it's important to address uh, a couple things here. First of all, the, the information that you're talking about is all pre-decisional. Uh, nothing's final until the FY25 budget request comes out. And that's what you're talking about is really leaks or trial balloons for major programs that are in the FY25 budget request. Um, and then uh, uh, that's exactly what that is. It's a request. The administration requests and Congress provides. So uh, a lot of it is pre-decisional. We'll see how that plays out. Um, that said, I do expect to see those in the FY25 uh, uh, budget request. But I, I think bigger picture, um, there's, there's a fundamental mismatch between our national security strategy and what we are or what we're appropriating for national security. The top line is far too small for what the country asked the Department of Defense and particularly the Department of the Air Force to do. So um, that, that's, that's really what has to be addressed. And if you remember from uh, previous podcasts, the, the FY25 budget request is going to be about $895 billion. That's a 1% increase above what we expect and the FY24, if they ever get that uh, uh, passed, one um, percent does not keep up with inflation. So that's a reduced purchasing power effect right there. 
Um, you know, as my grandfather used to say, um, we, we have a uh, champagne appetite, but only a beer income. So there are too many requirements and not enough money to get things done. Um, but I would say also, Slick, that it's about how the DOD budget is divided. There's a mismatch between the service um, contributions to the national defense strategy and what the budget allocations are. The Air and Space Force are asked to do an incredible amount, and they're not given the resources to do it. The continuing um, effort of easy planning by going one-third, one-third, one-third to the three departments is not going to cut it, and it certainly doesn't cut it for the Department of the Air Force. Um, but now, specifically, your, your, your question, and sadly, I predict that the past will be prologue, uh, and Congress is going to just do what they did the, uh, the last few years. The big ticket items that are in the in the budget are going to be funded. So I would imagine that there's going to be a submarine added back. There's going to be additional F-35s added back. There's going to be a lot of those big ticket items that protect jobs for members of Congress. Those will go back. Um, I think personnel accounts are going to be sacred cows and weapons procurement is going to be pretty important there. So I think what's left over is going to face some severe um it's going to be really a, a tough fiscal environment for a lot of the uh, the readiness type uh, programs there. The less glamorous enabling slash connecting capabilities, I think, are going to be at great risk. So anything that's JAD C2 related uh, is going to is going to struggle to get full funding there. Um, and then more importantly, I think the, the um, uncertainty over how FY24 is going to play out certainly affects the numbers in FY25, but more importantly, the timing of when that budget request is going to go over to the Hill. And just to remind people, the State of the Union address is scheduled for uh, the 7th of March. So at, that's that's basically, you know, a week from Thursday. Um, more than likely, there will be a partial government shutdown. We may not have the, uh, the we may be facing another shutdown without having the, the last eight uh, appropriations bills funded at, by the 8 March deadline. Um, so that, that's going to really make it complicated. Uh, OMB has stated that uh, they are going to send the FY25 budget request over to Congress as early as the 11th of March. I don't know how that's possible if you don't know what 24 is. So we'll see. But, you know, really the bottom line here is that every day that we don't have an FY24 uh, budget affects readiness. And it also impacts FY25, which will further impact readiness. And I'm going to go out on a limb here. You heard it here first. I'm going to predict that FY25 starts under a continuing resolution. <laughs> All right. Well, there you have it from from Sledge Harmer. And, and I'm sure some other folks want to hop in here. So I want to open the floor for uh, for our team here. Yeah. Well, um, Slick, I have to weigh in uh, on this as it's the crux of our defense challenges today. Um, as Sledge said, uh, particularly for both the Air Force and the Space Force, um, Simply put, and to reiterate his remarks, uh, both these services have much more mission assigned and expected of them than they do the resources to accomplish those missions. The world's on fire and the Congress is acting like nothing is happening. Budgets are driving our military strategy, not the other way around, and the potential consequences are going to be disastrous when we lose in the next major regional fight because of a lack of capacity, when we run out of munitions in the first week of the conflict, when we don't have enough qualified pilots to take the fight to the enemy because of significant attrition of our geriatric combat air forces and the associated 2,000 pilot shortfall that's been an issue for over a decade. 
when we don't have sufficient maintainers to generate necessary combat sorties, and the list goes on. So we either need to resource our defense strategy or lessen the demands of that strategy, by the way, neither of which is likely to occur, or we need to get smarter about how we best allocate the resources that we do have to achieve the greatest combat effect per cost. Okay, and that will require an honest rules and missions review that's been long overdue. Now, I hope that our new chairman is putting together a plan to do that, because frankly, that's the only way we might be able to squeeze out some needed capabilities and capacity to help us in our next big fight. Candidly, a fight with China will be determined by how strong our air and space forces are, not how big our army is. So it's time to start shifting resources from the army to the air force. Yeah, Gonzi here. I'd like to make uh, one quick point, picking up on uh, Slick, your mention of the Army's cancellation of its program to buy a new scout helicopter to replace its uh, retired Kiowa warriors. That's going to save $5 billion or more. But the real reason for the cancellation is the Army wants to use some of those savings to field low-cost UAVs that can perform the same attack reconnaissance mission without risking crew losses. The Army Chief of Staff has said the uh, potential for low-cost drones that are equipped with sensors and weapons to replace crude scouts is a lesson learned from the Ukrainian conflict. And let's not forget that crew helos are not survivable in high-risk air defense environments. We saw that during Operation Desert Storm. So that's a good move on the part of the Army, and its rationale for doing so is exactly the kind of logic that Congress should agree with. But to be frank, DOD should make more of those kinds of trade-offs based on how we plan to fight in the future, as General Deptula just said, not in the past, in long-range strike, something we've discussed uh, before, uh, and the high, very high cost of service launch weapons compared to cost-effective air-delivered weapons is exactly the kind of trade-offs DOD needs to look at. You know, I'll go back yeah. to what you said, General Deptula. The it's amazing, you know, you just laid out uh, a narrative about how high the risk is right now to the nation. And uh, I just don't see that kind of candor coming out of the Department of the Air Force. Uh, I do think that there is a need to communicate more effectively, more assertively about the true state that the uh, Department of the Air Force is in right now. And that's going to require some folks to uh, change their MO a little bit, not kind of color outside the boundaries of the budget. But I'd also come back to say, <clears throat> you know, I hope, Sledge, there's some hope uh, soon in the future that this $40 billion pass-through, which uh, just the other day, uh, Defense Media had an interview, uh, the uh, reporter threw at me that uh, the three services departments are uh, equally funded. And uh, I had to go into a little tutorial about the pass-through. It just misrepresents that there is some kind of equal share of budget going to each of the services. And we know the Air Force right now is really hurting and is not funded equally uh, with the rest of the services. So uh, Charles here, Slick, from a space perspective, you're getting an incredible deal with every dollar you put in space. You're getting far more capability 
impacting all of the services, as well as all of our national security uh, activities and, and several commercial activities and everyday way of life for the average American. Where we need to see some change, though, is recognizing that the space capabilities that we've relied on for decades are under attack. They're under threat. And we have to adjust our thinking and our budgets and our way of procuring systems and our way of delivering capabilities and effects to respond to that threat. And you can't do that if you taper off the budgets after only four years of growth for the Space Force. That growth has got to continue until we get to a mature state. The $30 billion a year, and that's a small pittance uh, compared to the other services, uh, you know, is not enough to grow the Space Force to what we need it to be. The 14,000 or so guardians, and that's military and civilian guardians, is not enough for the missions that we inherited, the missions that we've grown to, and the missions we know we're going to continue to grow to in the coming years. Yeah, very well said all. I'm glad that you, that you all hopped in. Um, Sledge, I want to ask you one more question uh, about the Hill. Uh, any shot we get the Ukraine funding, uh, you know, it's beyond frustrating that a lot of members don't understand the broader implications of their opposition. You know, China's watching this. So is Iran, North Korea, and obviously Putin. Um, you know, the message we're sending, you know, is to push up the aggression. You know, the West won't hold. So, uh, you know, we're going to start putting Americans in harm's way because of this. I mean, frankly, you could argue that we already are. Look at what's going on in the Middle East. So what are your predictions there? Yes, look, I, I well, first of all, I, I agree with your underlying message here, and that's, that is weakness emboldens our adversaries and invites aggression. Uh, historically, appeasement has a very, very poor track record. So I think that's really what you're trying to say here. Specifically on Ukraine, yes, there is a shot. Um, and I see really two different uh, paths for this to take. Um, and again, this gets back to the math problem that Speaker Johnson has. How does he get to 218 uh, when he has a significant part or portion of his, his conference that are getting beat up back in their district saying, why are we sending more money to Ukraine? Secure the southern border first. So it's going to be very, very difficult. In fact, one senior uh, defense appropriator said, if it's a Republican only event, it's going to take about four months to get a supplemental for Ukraine passed. Four months, the war could be over. I mean, that, that's really unacceptable. Um, and I, I think a lot of the, uh, the name calling that's going on back and forth between the, uh, uh, the White House and Congress is not very helpful either. Um, but, you know, we've, we've said it on this podcast many times over the last 18 to 24 months. Um, I think there's been a fundamental lack of leadership out of the White House as to what the end state and what our objectives are in Ukraine. You know, supporting the effort for, you know, whatever it takes, as long as it takes, is not a strategy. And the president needs to get out there and he needs to articulate what victory looks like and rally support for Ukraine aid. He can't just call, he just can't throw bombs around and call names. And I, I think case in point, uh, Representative Mike Garcia from California um, has a white paper out. It's on his website if anyone wants to track it down. It's www.mikegarcia.house.gov. And the white paper is titled, Addressing the Ukraine Funding Debate, An Urgent Need for a Path to Victory, Transparency, Accountability, and a Sustainable Peace. He's basically begging the, the president, he says, you've got supporters in Congress that want to help us or help you. So help us help you. And, and I think that's the dialogue that needs to be going on. And, and I think happily, um, you know, uh, Tuesday, so there'll be a, a few days before this podcast is, uh, is published, 
Um, the president has invited the big four. So he's got uh, Senator Schumer and McConnell, and he's got uh, Speaker Johnson and Minority Leader Jeffries at the White House to talk about FY24 and some of the security supplementals, Ukraine at the top of the list. So let's hope they can hammer out some of those issues and get things moving. Uh, but again, you know, it's, it's really a math problem for the speaker. How does he get to 218? It's going to take a while if you rely solely on the, um, uh, on the Republicans. But there is a very arcane parliamentary uh, procedure that may save the day for him, and that's called a discharge petition. Um, Democrats filed uh, House Resolution uh, 1016 uh, about three, I believe about three weeks ago, and it takes 30 days to what the, the term of art is called ripen. And if that discharge petition gets 218 signatures, then within a certain time period, and I, I, if I'm not mistaken, it's 48 hours, uh, the speaker has uh, 48 hours to bring that bill to the floor. If that happens, you will have, um, you'll have a significant number of Republicans, but you'll have almost every single Democrat vote to pass Ukraine uh, funding. Now, the, the trick is going to be what's in there in terms of policy riders and poison pills, et cetera. But I think that's probably going to be the quickest path for us to get a package that approves funding for Ukraine, Israel, a few other things that can get to the Senate and pass there and get signed by the president. Um, and I'll just wrap up this question here, Slick, with, you know, this reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from Winston Churchill. Always count on the Americans to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. Um, so I, I think that's where we are. But in the meantime, Europe's got to step up or this war could be over before we uh, we get to the front. Yeah, well, let me yeah, jump in there with another quote. Edmund Burke said, quote, the only thing needed for the triumph of evil is for good people to do nothing, unquote. Not providing aid to Ukraine now is a vote for Putin to win and the triumph of evil over good. That would be a shameful outcome and undermines every tenet for the reason that the United States was established in the first place. Sir, of course, could not agree more. And uh, General Deptula, you've been in the news a lot talking about uh, things like the, the Houthi strikes. So uh, the U.S. and some of our allies have responded. But is it enough? You know, it seems like things are getting worse, not better. Yeah, well, thanks for asking, uh, Slick. The strikes today, frankly, from my perspective, are too gradual and they reflect a whack-a-mole strategy. I would also add that this approach is eroding U.S. and allied deterrent credibility. We've seen this before in our history, and one would think that we'd learn from it. Look at the Rolling Thunder campaign in Vietnam, a gradualist strategy that resulted in nothing but enormous U.S. combat losses without any significant effect on our enemy. It should come as no surprise that Iranian proxy groups are continuing attacks despite the recent U.S. retaliatory strikes. And it won't be until Iran and its proxies understand that their critical interests are at stake, attacks on U.S. forces and international shipping in the region won't stop. Now, to do that, there needs to be a course correction in the current U.S. strategy. The way to deter a wider conflict is not by saying that you don't want a wider war, or that we won't strike inside Iran, but by making sure Iran understands that if they and their proxies continue attacks on U.S. personnel and international shipping, 
then they can expect disastrous consequences. And then the United States needs to be ready, along with her allies, to follow up to create those consequences. So, um, look, I, I think your next question is probably going to be, all right, so how do we do that? So here are a couple of potential options. Um, we could deploy stealth combat aircraft to Iran's doorstep. Show them that the United States is serious about reserving the right to take direct action against Iran. Sending both a squadron of F-35s and a squadron of F-22s would send a very significant message to Iran when they're parked across the Arabian Gulf. These aircraft can operate with impunity anywhere within Iranian airspace, and Iran knows that. Another option is to do to Iranian ships what the Iranian proxies are trying to do to U.S. and coalition ships. Rid them out of the Gulf of Aden and the Red Sea. This isn't rocket science. Uh, third option, kinetically threaten Iranian oil exports. The Houthis aren't the only ones who can close a strait. The U.S. Navy could interdict Iranian military vessels and oil tankers if we wanted to. Additionally, there are Iranian oil facilities offshore mainline Iran that could also be put at risk. But we're in an election year. The current administration may not want to risk higher gas prices at the pump by constraining Iran's oil experts. Then there's the potential of cyber attacks. Remember Stuxnet? That's not Stutznet. Yeah. That's Stuxnet. <laughs> oh, you woke me up there. Cyber operations can be very effective and may be used to shut down Iran's oil distribution infrastructure if sanctions fall short, which they nominally do, as we've seen with Russian resources from oil sales explode, not decline. The bottom line up to this issue is the United States has options to change the current situation, and they need to take action to do so. Otherwise, there most likely will be continued disruption of the Red Sea shipping lanes and continued aggression by Iran and her proxies. Well, sir, thanks for that. And, you know, Gonzo, you worked on the National Security Council and OSD and, and a lot more. What are your thoughts here? Yeah. So when I was in OSD and at the NSC during the height of our counterterror and uh, coin operations in the 2000s, there was a lot of effort dedicated to improving DOD's ability to conduct indirect warfare. And by that, I mean acting through others to defeat enemies that we have in common instead of conducting operations ourselves. So the indirect approach typically requires equipping proxies for these operations. And that's exactly what Iran is doing with the Houthis, the Lebanese has groups of uh, Iranian sympathizers in Iraq and others. So the question is, how do you deter indirect warfare? And the most effective way is to punish the state sponsor of these indirect acts of violence instead of playing whack-a-mole and desert drizzle, to pull on a term General Datula used uh, back in the start of the campaign against ISIS, uh, which is what we've been doing. We must take actions that will cause Iran's mullahs to understand the price they will have to pay should they continue their proxy campaigns will be unacceptable. And maybe that's their Navy. They lose their Navy. That would be a clear, direct signal that no longer we cannot countenance these acts anymore. And there's a price to pay that's unacceptable. Yeah, I'll just, uh, boy, the boss has really <clears throat> laid this out. And Gonzo, you made some good points here. 
I just go back a little bit in history here. Remember, not too long ago, former president labeled uh, ISIS. Remember them? They were a junior varsity threat. And then over the next couple of years, they, they recruited, they grew, they pillaged, they burned. And then finally, a decision was made and to eradicate them. And it was a strong one. It was kinetic. And um, there was a minimum amount of uh, collateral damage, but it had to be done. You're looking at something very different with the Houthi, where you've got this state sponsor, Gonzo, you were saying. Um, there are There is so much more that can be done besides tit for tat, uh, exchanges of a few bombs here as they uh, shut down almost half, half of the uh, transit through the Suez Canal. That's going to, going to affect prices and costs in Europe and in North America. And we know who's doing this, who's backing it, unlike... ISIS, there is a chip to play in this uh, in this game, and it's got to be strong. Now we got to remember also that in the world today, you know, the threats we used to think about individually—China, Russia, Iran, North Korea—and all of the proxies—they're starting to synergize. They're working together. We can't just let this go another what six months, twelve months. Houthi will remain until something's done about. The, uh, the very entity that holds accountability for killing a lot of Americans over the last 20, 25 years. That's Ron. Yeah, Stutz, thanks for hopping on that and couldn't agree more. I do want to move on because we mentioned at the beginning of the show uh, that we're going to talk about this new organization. And, you know, Secretary Kendall and his Department of the Air Force leadership team unveiled a new organizational plan that'll impact both the Air Force and the Space Force. And he told us he was going to do this back at the Air, Space, and Cyber Conference in September, and he was good to his word. So, uh, General Deptula, do you mind to walk us through the major movements uh, on the Air Force side of the ledger? And, you know, you wrote about this in Forbes recently, too. Yeah, sure, Slick. Secretary Kendall and his service chief's visions and rationale for those visions really do deserve a claim uh, as do the pragmatic plans for implementing um, their recommended changes. Because rarely in any large organization, much less one of the nation's military departments, are reforms instituted of the magnitude and as important as the ones that they recently revealed. Heck, if you, I did a bit of research and you know they accomplished or at least laid out these changes in a fraction of the time that it took just to change the Air Force logo. Um, now, while the Air Force remains the most capable in the world today, and that's important, we have wonderful people, at the same time, it's the oldest, smallest, and least ready in its own history. That erosion occurred since the collapse of the Soviet Union, but it was accelerated during the 20 years of post-9-11 focus on counterinsurgency warfare to the exclusion of preparing for great power conflict. I, I have to remind the audience of Secretary uh, Gates castigating the Chief of Staff of the United States Air Force and the Secretary of the Air Force for, quote, next war-itis. Um, yeah, Mr. Gates, that was China. Uh, and as a result, the Department of the Air Force was funded less than the Army and the Navy during those years, leading to a set of air forces and space capabilities that desperately require modernization. Now, to get the Department of the Air Force back on a vector to achieve the kind of modernization efforts, not just to replace prior systems, but to deliver relevant capabilities for warfare in the future, 
Secretary Kimball and his staff uh, established the seven operational imperatives and three cross-cutting operational enablers. However, the Secretary has now made the point that it's not only modernization of the Air Force's aging inventory or of aircraft and Space Force capabilities that are required to deter and, if necessary, win in a great power conflict, it became clear to him that fundamental adjustments must also be accomplished to both the Air Force and Space Force ways and means of planning, preparing, organizing, and getting ready to fight against our most challenging potential adversaries. So, okay, let me cut to the chase here. The changes addressed by the Secretary and the Chiefs of the Air Force and the Space Force consist of 24 specific actions that fall into four categories. Develop people, generate readiness, project power, and develop capabilities. And all of these changes are intended to rapidly revector the fundamental operating posture of the department from how it was organized in the past to optimizing it for the threat challenges of today and the future. Now, by no means are these, challenge, are these changes going to happen overnight, and they will be adjusted uh, as they're implemented. Uh, but as Secretary Kendall made it clear, change is hard, but losing is unacceptable, and, and that's his motivation. I just want to add one more thing that I think most people recognize, that all of these changes that have been proposed are all going to be for naught if the Air Force is not provided the resources necessary to accomplish them. The Secretary, just before the announcement of these uh, changes, um, has made his feelings well known regarding congressional budget dysfunction uh, that Sledge mentioned earlier by saying that, quote, there's a chance that Congress will never appropriate the 24 budget. And I will have been in office for three and a half years and never seen a dime of money I need to be competitive with China. That's a crime, unquote. But guess what? I would tell you he's exactly right. The consequences of Congress failing to enact all 12 appropriation bills by April 30th, according to the Fiscal Responsibility Act, would cut the Department of the Air Force's top line funding to fiscal year 23 enacted levels minus 1%. Okay, what does that mean? Well, what it means is that would not only stifle modernization, it would kill the plan to optimize for great power competition and inalterably yield a significant advantage to our adversaries by reducing the Department of the Air Force buying power by $13 billion. When I would tell you, in fact, it needs that magnitude of plus up annually for the next decade to meet the demands of our current national defense strategy. So let me wrap this up by saying that the Department of the Air Force has delivered viable and executable plans to modernize and now to optimize for great power competition. Congress has to now do its job and resource those plans, or it's got a choice. It can risk losing when great power competition turns into conflict. Yeah, sir. Thanks for breaking that down. And Charles, I got to ask you, how does this affect the Space Force? Yeah, Slick. So the Space Force, as part of the Department of the Air Force, is following the same guidance uh, and direction. And so what General Deptool laid out in terms of the people, capability, readiness, and power projection, the Space Force is looking at those same four key areas. 
But I want to take it even more fundamental. The, the whole purpose of a service is to organize, train, and equip. Uh, we've seen in the past few years the Space Force really transform its acquisition approach, and they are delivering equipment and capability very rapidly. That's great. Well, we've talked about initiatives like uh, OTTI to help train our guardians to prepare for space as a warfighting domain. Um, when we stood up the Space Force, we did our best to organize ourselves to be as lean and effective as possible. But now with, with this enhanced shift to great power competition, we're taking another look at organization. And one of the biggest announcements that came out of the uh, Warfare Symposium was the establishment of a new command within Space Force and that of a Space Futures Command. Right now, the Space Warfighting and Analysis Center, which conducts the long-range planning, the, the wargaming to determine what type of capabilities and technologies we need for the future, um, is almost a direct report within the Space Force. But now, with the stand-up of the Space Futures Command, they will be an integral element of that new command. Uh, that will also help focus science technology research areas within the service uh, to ensure that we're getting the most that we can out of our lab efforts to mature technologies that we need for the warfighting capabilities that you know a great power competition will demand. And so th there were a lot of great uh, announcements made during the uh, warfighting symposium, and I, and I hope people go back and, and look at those. Those are all available online. But to me, what really stands out is the establishment of a new Space Forces or Space Futures Command. Uh, but, but yeah, please go take a look at uh, what uh, General Burt said about the GMTI mission. Go take a look at, at what we talked about in terms of COCOM integration of space capabilities and, uh, and, and how we're infusing space warfighting mindsets uh, across the COCOMs in the service. Well, well, Charles, the Space Force just stood up a few years ago with a brand new org chart. So why the change now? Yeah, that's a great question, Slick. And for me, we knew when we stood up the Space Force that we were uh, organizing ourselves primarily for great power competition. And we were trying to be, as I said, as, as effective and, and as lean as possible. But that, that where does the Space Warfighting Analysis Center go, uh, that remained an open question. And what I see by having the announcements come out as part of the Department of the Air Force's broader strategy, it further reemphasizes to everybody that the Space Force is there for great power competition and we are designing our capabilities and our mindsets so that we are prepared for a potential future conflict. Uh, things are changing rapidly within the Space Force. Uh, something new is happening every day. And, and so this new organizational approach, I think, is just a continuing evolution uh, of the growth of the Space Force. And you know, to, to piggyback on what General Deptula was saying about the budget, the continued growth of the Space Force. Let me emphasize that as many times as possible. That has to be the case, growth. And we need the budget and we need the personnel to make that happen. Yeah, it was staggering when you said, you know, the entire force of active duty and civilian guardians is only 14,000 people. So, um, yeah, I could not agree with you more. Gonzo and Stutz, you both spent decades in the service and you've seen a lot of reorgs. So uh, what do we look for as we evaluate whether this is having the intended effect or not? Yeah, that's a great question. For me, the most important measure of effectiveness will be the extent the reorg streamlines the Air Force's requirements and acquisition processes. If it's going to help accelerate the delivery of new capabilities to warfighters. Now, while it's still early in the process, I'm happy to see that determining requirements will remain the responsibility 
of the Air Force's warfighters. And integrating those requirements will happen at the ICC instead of at the air staff and secretariat levels. Uh, one other point, anyone who has spent time in the Pentagon understands the outsized role the building's programmers play in the requirements process. So I hope this reorg will diminish some of that budget influence, at least inside the Air Force. Air Force warfighters should define future capability and force structure requirements, not the services budget engineering. One more thought. I've experienced multiple reorgs during my time in the Pentagon, including Secretary Rumsfeld's mandate in the early 2000s for the services, OSD, and other staffs to cut their personnel by 15% to improve duties tooth-to-tear ratio. So staffs made their cuts, but their workloads didn't really diminish. And they compensated by hiring thousands of contractors to fill the gap. That didn't save resources. So the lesson learned is analysis should inform reorgs, preferably before changes are decided. And I hope the Air Force has performed that analysis to determine if its reorg will be resource neutral or could drive bills to take dollars away from an already inadequate acquisition budget. Hey, Slick, well, I'll jump in. And Slick, you know me. Uh, I'm going to be the odd man out here. Um, I, I, I have to start by saying I respect the Air Force Secretary for what he's done, especially with the operational initiatives. And we know that he's bypassed a lot of corporate process that we know and love uh, to get uh, progress on what he's trying to do. But, but frankly, is this the time for a reorg? I don't know. Uh, and I'm not a big fan of it right now till we see some results. But I do know the reorg's not going to, as General Deptula said, it doesn't alone increase the TOA. It doesn't rebalance budget share across the services. Reorg's not going to improve recruiting or retention. It's not going to solve the pilot shortage problem, about 2,000 pilots. Uh, it doesn't solve the shortage of fighter pilot experience. It doesn't improve acquisition laws and regulations. It doesn't improve officer development. It sure doesn't encourage uh, Air Force leadership uh, in the form of its uh, senior executives and its general officers to speak more forthrightly about the needs of the service. So what I would like to see, and, and I'll, I'll withhold judgment, is that there are measures in place that can be reported, you know, perhaps every 90 days, not progress toward the reorg, but progress toward whatever the reorg is intended to do in those four buckets, uh, measure that and, and prove that uh, this reorg isn't going to introduce more chaos and, and confusion into uh, a time when you know things are, as General Deptula said, the world's on fire. Lots of things to be working, and uh, maybe this isn't it, but we'll see. No, thanks for that perspective, Stutz. Always, always good to see both sides of the coin. Sledge, I've got to ask you while we have you: How is the Hill responding to this, and you know what will drive their interest and in oversight? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, Slick, I was I was at the uh, Air and Space Force uh, Association Warfare Symposium, so got to hear the Secretary unveil this. Uh, there were several uh, Defense Oversight Committee professional staff members there, and I did get a chance to to talk with them. Uh, during the show. But first of all, I'd like to commend or uh, compliment the uh, the association for running a great, uh, great conference. I mean, I think over 18,000 people were there. It was, it was first rate. So uh, tip of the cap to the association. Um, but I think measured skepticism is probably the best way to, to 
summarize the conversations that I had with the professional staff. And, and I think there, there's a couple things. A, a lot of what Stutz uh, just said rings true with, with people that have seen this and been there and, and understand how, what reorgs are supposed to do in theory and what they do in reality. Um, but also the Air Force has had a very uh, spotty track record with Congress over, well, at least the last 15 years that I've been, um, you know, involved on Capitol Hill, where we say one thing and then the next year we change plans and we're just very inconsistent in what we're trying to do and what we try to message. So I think there's a little bit of skepticism there. There were a lot of comments. Um, and again, to paraphrase something about deck chairs in the Titanic uh, was really the way they saw this in, in the top line. Um, but I would expect as this proposal comes over to the Hill and as things move forward, Congress is really going to drill down on a couple of main things. The first is going to be what will it cost? Um, because this is not a, uh, I don't see this as a zero sum game. There's going to be some cost to the reorganization. And then more importantly, who is going to control the budget authorities? You stand up all these different organizations because the leg legacy bureaucracy is still going to protect the rice bowl. And, and I really hope as the secretary was going and his staff were going through the planning uh, process here, they took a really hard look at Army's future command and ASALT, the Army Acquisition um, Logistics and uh, Technology uh, Office. So I guess the equivalent would be uh, our SAF AQ, SAF SQ, um, because it's great to have these organizations, but if they don't have the resources, they can't make the resource decisions, they're just high-speed cheerleaders. And, and I think that's something that, that Congress will look at as well. Um, I think probably the number one thing that they're going to look at also is, will this improve readiness? Because that's the biggest concern on Capitol Hill. Um, and I, I think the one thing they'll drill down the most on are the force presentation models, how the Air Force is going to equip, how they're going to forward to deploy forces, and how they are going to provide capabilities to the Joint Force Commander. Um, I think another thing to look at, and this may not be overt, this may be more implied, is going to be, will this initiative survive a change in leadership or an administration? Because as you know, um, if a force of personality um, leaves an organization, all of their initiatives tend to go with them. So we'll see how that plays out. And then the last thing, uh, very cynically, um, you know, having been on both the giving and receiving end of a lot of these reorganizations, um, there are members of Congress that are going to look straight at the secretary and the chief and are going to say, what does this mean to general officer billets in my state or in my district? Uh, that's sad, but that's the reality of the representative government that we have. I want to get to the last question here, Charles. We've got to ask you, we've been talking a lot, what is new in space? You know, we just recorded a special uh, discussion about the new Russian threats. So anything else we should be looking out for? Yeah, so sick. thanks. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, there's something new happening every day in the Space Force, and, and that goes uh, doubly true for this, the space community. I'm sure everybody was tracking the uh, landing of intuitive machines on the moon. And so why am I bringing this up here in a national security discussion forum? It's an interesting uh, model. NASA basically contracted a commercial organization to put some payload, some mission capability on the moon. By doing so, they got what they needed on the moon at a much cheaper cost and in a much quicker timeline. Can the Space Force and other defense organizations look at similar models for delivering capabilities that can be leveraged? So it's just something to consider. But back to the Space Force specifically, uh, 
this didn't get a lot of news, but the Space Development Agency launched all of its Tranche Zero satellites. So that's 27 satellites, nine conduct, uh, 19 conducting data transport and communications, and eight conducting missile warning. 27 satellites put on orbit within 42 months of contract award. That's fast, folks. Um, and they are not stopping. Tranche 1 is going to begin launching this September. Um, Victus Knox, which is a lot of folks will remember, was a tactically responsive launch capability that was demonstrated back in September. After completing its, its mission and, and five months on orbit, it has successfully deorbited uh, and after mission accomplishment. So a lot has been happening in space. Uh, I hope people are, are watching the news as, as carefully as I am and picking up on all of these great activities going on. Uh, but, but thanks for the question, Slick. Yeah, of course. And Charles, we'll table this for another time. But, you know, the 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 flying community learned this a long time ago that the commercialization, you know, uh, is obviously much more efficient than the government solely trying to do it by itself. Just look at the uh, the U.S. mail service back uh, back in the early days. So we'll we'll have to tee that up for another discussion later on. So I, and, and I agree with you. There's so many wins going on every day. So uh, it's, it's pretty exciting. But we are at the end of our time. So I just want to say thank you to everybody. General Dabtula Stutz. Charles Gonzo Sledge. It's always awesome catching up and, and uh, really appreciate the contributions to the rendezvous. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.